Well, welcome. If you're joining us for the first time, we've been looking uh, through the book of Proverbs, and we've come to chapter 3, the second part of chapter 3, beginning with verse 13, and we'll look at the, uh, uh, the whole section there. Let me give just a couple of words of introduction while you're turning there. If you're looking in the Bibles that uh, are provided, it's on page uh, 901. It's also printed in your bulletin and uh, broken up in your bulletin in the way that we'll look at it uh, today in uh, in teaching it. Proverbs are a book that some people are very familiar with. It's convenient to read in a monthly cycle. I've heard some pastors and many people will read through basically the book of Proverbs almost monthly, just taking a chapter a day, and I, I recommend that practice, not necessarily every day or every month, but uh, it's such a dense book that whereas a, a lot of books are good to read in large chunks and, and to see the context of the story played out, in Proverbs, it's, it's helpful to, to just take it in smaller bite-sized pieces. The book of Proverbs begins with the first nine chapters of a father, essentially, it's King Solomon, David's son, um, a father teaching his son, and probably uh, more than that, many of his children, wisdom and imparting it to them, and not necessarily just teaching them the wisdom in these first nine chapters, but imploring them, exciting them to pursue wisdom, showing them how godly wisdom is more valuable than anything else in life that they may be uh, desirous of, that they want to pursue. And the beginning of this section talks about that. You'll hear it. It's, it's more valuable than the pursuit of money. It's more valuable than the pursuit of long life. It's more valuable than, uh, than, than power or glory or any of these other things. It's more... Uh, It's more precious than beauty itself. But Proverbs also is is extolling the virtue of wisdom. And wisdom wisdom is explained or or described in biblical terms as more than just uh, having knowledge or even rightly applying that knowledge. Wisdom is the creation of beauty by the use of of God's knowledge. Wisdom is pleasantness and peace experienced in life by walking with God. You'll hear that language as well as we read through this. And then at the end of this passage, or toward the end of this this passage, this letter that that Solomon is writing or telling to his his son and, and by extension his other children and by extension us as God's children, you hear some of that wisdom explained, specific instructions on things to do or not to do. So without any more ado, let's, uh, uh, let's, let's read this, this portion of God's Word, beginning with chapter 13 and going through, or verse 13, going through uh, verse 35. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, 
and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, and in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, for they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin or storm of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. For the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. Grass withers and the flower falls, but God's word, he tells us, stands forever. You join me in prayer. Father, would you teach us your wisdom, that we would not simply have knowledge but know how to walk with you and how to enjoy your good things. For what is the chief end of man but to glorify you and enjoy you forever? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The context of this letter, a king writing to his son, can sometimes be off-putting to us. It's difficult to interpret. None of us are kings or the sons of kings, we've looked at. And yet, when the scriptures are presented to us, when concepts are given to us from scripture, teaching and instruction given, sometimes it's given in broad stroke commands, instructions. The Ten Commandments are examples of that. The Proverbs themselves, short, pithy statements are examples of that. But what's particularly helpful, not just in the context of biblical teaching, but also in all law, is the understanding of particular cases. The law is interpreted by judges or juries who decide particular cases that get into the nitty-gritty of things, the specifics of the case. 
And when you get into the nitty-gritty, the specifics of the case, even if the situation isn't directly applicable to you or a one-for-one parallel with your life, usually you can find elements of the specifics and apply them to your situation or your life situation, your life consequences or, or difficulties and have a better understanding of how these things play out. And so by God giving us these instructions, these, these letters, extolling wisdom in the specific context of Solomon speaking to his son is actually a better way oftentimes for us to be able to apply them to us even though we aren't in the same situation whether you're a son or a daughter whether you're a parent or a child whether you're giving the wisdom or whether you're receiving the wisdom let me let you in one insight on effective preaching and applying God's word to our life some people um, have difficulty when pastors give particular applications in their, their sermons and get very specific. And one of the arguments against that is that, well, you're only catching a certain number of people. Well, the same principle, you can grade my sermons now based on this principle. The same principle can be applied in sermons, as I just explained, about the book of Proverbs and this situation, situational specificity that uh, is presented to us or that I would give you. Because when that application is given to you in the specifics, even if you're not in the same situation, oftentimes it helps us to dig down and think about, wait, I have not thought about God's word applied that deeply in my life before. And here is one of the chief issues that we looked at last week that Proverbs is wanting to address and the king is teaching his son is that the call of God on our life and the teaching of scripture for our life is meant to be applied to all of our life. Not just a little bit of it on Sunday morning or some portion of our life when we do a quiet time. But you remember chapter three with that famous well-known verse, trust in the Lord with what? All of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. I don't know if I brought it out entirely clear last week, and so it's worth revisiting the verse 6 when it says, all your ways acknowledge him. Acknowledge is a verb form, really, of, of the word, a significant word in the Hebrew that is simply to know. In other words, what the proverb, what the, the king is saying to his son and God is saying to us is this instruction that in all of your life, in everything that you do, don't just acknowledge that God is present, but know him and know his presence in your life. Know that wisdom is walking with God all the time. There is never a time that we are not out of the presence of God or that we are out of the presence of God. There is never a time that he is not with us. And yet oftentimes we fail to acknowledge his presence. We fail to know him and know 
what to do in situations because we are unaware that he's there with us. Unaware that he's given us instruction on how to live. The second thing I want you to see about the king giving these specific instructions and the king to his son, and sometimes this is easy to miss in Proverbs as well, is the very grace and favor and love of God as he gives these instructions. It oftentimes feels impersonal. If you just do these things, then you will get wealth, beauty, long life, pleasantness, peace, and people apply them and sometimes we hear them and think of these as just a means to an end of success when the very context of a son, a father sitting down with a son and teaching that son demonstrates the very love and grace and favor that that father has for the son. What's the most unloving thing you can do for a child or for anybody that you love is to ignore them. It's to not spend time with them. It's to not speak to them to understand what they're going through and also to warn them about the dangers all around them that they may not have experienced yet or may be unaware of. The Proverbs, especially the first nine chapters of the Proverbs, are all about warning a son of the dangers in the places that look oftentimes very appealing. Wealth, power, beauty. But the father is explaining to his son, and God is explaining to us as his sons and daughters, that the path to all of those things is found in wisdom itself. The wisdom that is living in God's word, world with an awareness of his presence an awareness of his companionship and direction. We'll look at just a couple of main points here. And those are found in verses 19 and 20. And then also the second one in verses 21 through 26. Before I do that, just a word of introduction from the first few verses. And then we'll close out with some of those specifics that he gave us. And in, in, in instructions of things to avoid and things to, to do. The first thing I want you to see in the first few verses there is the, uh, I'll just read from, uh, from verse 16 here. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. The very presentation of this, the long life in her right hand, the, the riches and honor in her left hand seem like, again, is presenting these are the rewards from pursuing wisdom. But the language that the Hebrew uses here, really it's there in the English as well, if you know what you're looking for, is demonstrating that long life is a valuable thing, a wonderful thing. It's even better than riches and honor. For the right hand in ancient culture and still even parts of the world today is more valuable than the left hand Oftentimes, it's considered. That's the general thing. So when Jesus' disciples come to him and say, let us sit on your right hand, they're asking for the most prominent position. Long life is better than 
riches and honor. Better than all of those things is wisdom. For wisdom is presented not as the right hand or the left hand, but the person person herself. Wisdom is elevated to the most significant thing. What do you seek in life? Seek after wisdom as if the most valuable thing. For in the wisdom, the other things will be provided. But if you seek after the other things first, don't be surprised if wisdom never accompanies it. Pastor and author Ray Ortland summarized it this way. Don't aim at money. If you need money, aim at wisdom. And you'll make the money that's right for you. That is why wisdom is more precious than jewels. Verse 15. Wisdom is skill at living well. Money is not. Money can put food on the table. But wisdom puts laughter around the table. Money can buy a house, but wisdom makes a home. Money can buy a woman jewelry, but wisdom wins her heart. My son, seek wisdom with all of your life. First, lay hold of it. The language, by the way, looking at verse 19 and 20, The language, by the way, is so personified that many have struggled and and, and quested after understanding who is this woman, wisdom. Is it an actual person? Many in the ancient world connected it with the person of Jesus Christ. And not confusing the gender of Jesus, but simply saying that the person, woman, wisdom is fulfilled in Christ and in many aspects God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are wisdom in themselves, and yet there is not that one-for-one comparison between wisdom, the woman wisdom here presented, which is, uh, which is a, a, not a real person, an actual person, but a, a, an idea, a concept. It's not insignificant that God chooses a woman to present the wisdom. For uh, The ancient world was filled with the understanding that women were less wise oftentimes, less organized, agents of chaos than uh, men were. And so in this, subtly, God is pushing back on cultural assumptions of gender, value, worth, intelligence, and uh, wisdom itself. And yet, verse 19 and 20 bring out this interesting point about who God is and what wisdom does in tying Wisdom with the very creation of the earth itself. For the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds drop the dew. John Piper uh, famously took this verse and un- unpacked it a little bit just to look at the significance that's, that's really quickly read over and ignored if you pass by this too fast. Just with the concept of the deeps breaking, breaking open, which is a reference to, to pouring rain coming out of the sky, and also the subtleness of clouds 
dropping the dew. The, the deeps breaking open is, is the language that's used to describe the flood in Genesis. The destructive power of God, the power, the massive amount of water that falls from the earth with a downpour. Piper did some math, explained that one square mile of rain, just an inch deep, is one and a half billion pounds of water. And then invited his listeners to just think about the amazing feat, engineering feat, if you will, creative feat of God making the water evaporate from the earth and rise up to the clouds and gather together and then at times drench the earth with power and fill the seas and fill the oceans and at other times gently fall in rain to water the crops and bring life to earth. You see that specificity, it's an invitation for us to look at all of God's creation and find something of the creative beauty, creative design, the the intricacy and the magnitude of God's creative ability in making the heavens and the earth. Sometimes science is presented as at at odds with, uh, with, with Christian religion or with religion in general. But the invitation that we have over and over in the scriptures from Genesis 1 to Psalms Psalms 18 and some of the other Psalms to Romans chapter 1 is to look at God's creation, to look at nature itself. And in that nature, marvel at the handiwork of God at the creative design that God has worked to provide a place where we can live and thrive. To see the science behind it, to look down to the smallest of particles and see that God's fingerprint is on all of that. And when we see that creative design and recognize the science of studying that is actually the science of studying a part of God in his general revelation. We can see that science is not at all at odds with who God is, but science is rather a study of who God is. Now where things get at odds is when people bring their own assumptions to the science and are out to either prove God's non-existence by the science, and so those assumptions feed into everything they have, or they bring an assumption and a reality from God's special revelation, his word, to explain to us that God made all of these things. The irony of the, of the second is, is really pretty obvious. And do you remember, maybe you remember sometime, this is the 50th anniversary of the lunar landing. And prior to that, the, uh, the Russians made it into space famously first. And compare Neil Armstrong's first comet, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. By the way, 
I understand that they actually celebrated quietly the Lord's Supper on the moon in that first uh, lunar landing that uh, um, is another topic. So they recognized God in in going to the moon and and that God was there. Compare that to the comment that the Russian uh, astronaut, I don't remember his name, made when he he, uh, was, was radioing back to Earth. He looked around and he said, I don't see God. I mean, it's like me going in the closet over there and looking around and saying, I don't see God. On the one hand, to think that you see all of space by just looking at one small part is an arrogance beyond measure. And on the other hand, to assume that God is limited by time and space is ignorant of his special revelation in his word. See, wisdom sees that there is creative power in God's work, but it also, it also calls us into the creative work that God has established and called us to do. Too often, wisdom is thought of as avoiding the wrong path, not doing certain things. But I want you to turn your view from that based on so this, the teachings of Proverbs to see your call in life in applying wisdom is not only walking with God, but being a part of creating beauty that God has called you to make. You too, in one of their songs, expresses this, this sentiment that grace makes beauty out of ugly things. Wisdom applied rightly in life applies God's grace into all kinds of situations to bring beauty, to make beauty, whether it's physical representations in the form of art or reconciliation and restoration between relationships, the gathering together of people and unity and the the beauty of that, the experience of peace when war has ravaged a country and things are rebuilt. This is part of the goal of wisdom is to create beauty and it's part of our call as the people of God. The other portion that I want us to look at is verses 21 through 26 and this concept that I introduced earlier that may not be clear to you that wisdom is walking with God. He opens, my son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Adornment in the ancient world was something that was widespread. People beautified themselves. I know that's not a word. I think it isn't a word. Maybe it is a word. Tried to make themselves beauty by adorning themselves. And God stands against that wisdom by explaining that the Christian, the follower of God, is made beautiful by who they are and what they do. And the external appearances are so often deceiving. Like the Pharisees who were called by Jesus whitewashed. In other words, painted made look nice, whitewashed tombs. Death. Part of the warning 
that Solomon has given multiple times and that's contrasted with the long life of this section. A tree of life, an image, the, uh, the, the concept is used from Genesis again to Revelation to express eternal life, not just long life. Don't lose sight of these things. They'll be uh, keep sound wisdom and discretion. And then look down at, uh, at verse 26 with me. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Sandwiched in between there is all of life. When you walk on your way, when you're doing the things of life, and when you're in your bed and sleeping. Everything in between. God will go with you if you pursue his wisdom. He will walk with you. I know the most... uh, I won't go there. I won't go there. It is a bit like the old poem that is on too many walls, but it still has an element of truth of God walking with us in the sand. You remember that? That's an old footprints uh, poem. Uh, but, but still, God is, is with us and walking along the way and guarding, guarding our feet. Let's look then just briefly at the, uh, the last portion of, of this, uh, this passage. Verse 28 and uh, 27 and following, because we get into some specific instances. Do not withhold good from those whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Don't say to your neighbor, go and come again tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. These are probably the closest things to actual Proverbs that we've come across yet in the book. And so it's starting to introduce us to these pithy statements that are helpful principles. Now what's going on here is simply this. Somebody who has hired another person to do work, probably a person who is a day laborer, meaning they're living day by day. We think of living month by month because of the way we're paid. But in the ancient world, they were living day by day oftentimes, and they would be paid for a day's work, and they would need that pay to go buy food for the evening and for the next day. And so what Solomon is warning his son, who will be in a position of power, is to not withhold from somebody who is needing something, the pay or something else maybe, don't withhold it when it is yours and you have it to give. Now sometimes... Sometimes as employers, the the cash flow is trapped and you don't have the money. It's a different situation in that case and requires communication. But in this case, he's saying, don't keep the money back when you can give it. You say, why would you even keep the money back? Well, it is staggering. For those of you who are in business or have explored some business concepts, it's staggering how much financial profit can be gained by simply negotiating on a large scale a day more that you have to pay another person. I can say that from my experience in business. By simply negotiating when a payment will be made and allowing it to be a day later, you're able to keep a significantly higher cash balance or investment balance and make money off of that money. A king would understand this principle. It may be applied differently for you, but this is important particularly for those who are in positions of power and also those who pay others. Don't withhold it. That's a selfish thing and it actually takes. Takes from another person. Adds stress to another person. Applied more broadly, pay a person a fair wage. Don't try to pull one over on them. 
talked to somebody recently who had an employer actually try to not pay them part of what they were due. And if they hadn't looked at their check, like many of us don't, they would never have known that the employer possibly intentionally left off a significant amount of money. Verse 29, do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. I think this one might be actually a bit easier for us to apply. Don't plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Simply in the understanding of What's the old phrase? Wanting what your neighbor has, the, the, the Joneses, keeping up with the Joneses. Simply in coveting what our neighbors have, whether it's in their material possessions or in their family life or in their position at work, robs us of joy in life. It puts our hearts at enmity with one another. Even if it's not expressed outwardly that a person can see, it robs us of the joy that God wants us to experience in the life He's given us. Envy, it is said, is the only one of the seven deadly sins that doesn't allow you a moment of pleasure. I'm not commending the other deadly sins. But consider what envy can do to you and what that does to your relationship with your neighbor. And how that contrasts with Jesus' command to love your neighbor as yourself. Rather, build up trust with your neighbor. Both those inside the faith and those outside of the faith. Let them see that you are trustworthy and that you can be counted on in times of difficulty. Leave room in your life. Create margin that when a neighbor comes to you, you can do good and you have it within you to do it. Sometimes there are contentions that we have with other people. The scriptures tell us, live peaceably with everyone so long as you are able. Understanding that there are situations and times where we have conflict with others that are quite outside of our control. Be willing to forgive. Don't let Bitterness, establish a root in your heart. And don't let that lead to contention with a neighbor. Verse 31, do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. For the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. Violence seems like it's a a distant thing, I think, for most of us in Western culture. We don't live in fear oftentimes of our neighbor creating violence against us or causing violence against us. Most of us are not tempted to go pummel our neighbor even if we're at odds with him for legitimate reasons. But violence is a very real thing in culture in some places in a a very literal way. And so if somebody who's living in a war-torn or 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 a a torn area torn up by a warlord causing violence, wreaking havoc. This verse has a very specific application. 
And oftentimes it's very tempting to look at that person and how they may be succeeding and say, maybe I should use a little violence to achieve my purposes. Maybe I should take it upon myself for a little vigilante justice. Seems more efficient, effective. Solomon is warning his son, it's a dangerous path to go down to do that. He still say, well, I still don't see how that applies in my life, but we see it in various forms from even a young age when a physical bully at school pounds on another child. Oftentimes, the violence isn't physical, it's threatened. And the fear of the violence is oftentimes even more damaging than the violence itself. Now we're probably getting a little bit closer to home. Sadly, in many homes and in many places, people live in fear of physical harm from others. And the use of abusive control in various relationships and places of work and even churches is thankfully being uncovered and revealed and worked through more and more today. But it is extremely present. And fear-mongering is a dangerous thing that God warns us against, not envying that, looking on others who get their way because of that threat of violence or violence itself, recognizing that God's way is a very different form of cultural change and a very different form of getting effective results. God, or Solomon closes this, God's word, with language that is covenantal language. Covenantal language is relationship language. It's used to apply to marriages and making a marriage covenant or vows. It's also used to speak of nations or groups of people making agreements. Covenants were prevalent in the ancient world, particularly in this time. And God uses the language of these national covenants to explain his relationship with his people. Covenants required things of both parties. And there were blessings that would come and were named in the covenant if those promises were kept. And there were curses that were named that would ensue if the promises were broken. Verse 33, the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. What God is saying here is that he's not absent. He's not absent from his people and he doesn't recognize when injustice is done. God isn't a God to be trifled with. To think, oh, he's my buddy and I'm walking with him and he helps me and tells me all the things I want to hear. God is a powerful God who warns you of danger coming up and sometimes even picks you up and moves you. 
God warns you that if you commit injustice against another person, he doesn't just sweep it under the rug. It has to be dealt with. God also says that in his wisdom, or the wisdom of the world, is turned upside down and made foolish by this one significant thing that he does for his people. And that is that when justice is due, He doesn't ignore it. Grace isn't the sweeping under the rug of justice or an issue. He enters into the situation and he deals with it. He has the hard conversations that are required to address the issue and says, don't do it again. Oftentimes, his people do it again and he comes back to them and says, I forgive you again, but don't do it again. And when the danger really gets bad is when his people start presuming on his grace. They say, well, God's forgiven me dozens of times. He'll forgive me again. God doesn't look at the scorner and say, well, he just needs another forgiveness. He or the scorner, is scornful. He brings his judgment in his fullness upon people who deserve judgment, but the foolishness of God, he says in 1 Corinthians, using some uh, liberal language there, God isn't foolish, but even the foolishness of God is, is wisdom compared to what the world sees as wisdom. For the world in their time and in our time saw wisdom as the achievement of power so that you can get your way. The achievement of wealth, success, beauty, that was wisdom, that is still wisdom. But God says, God says that wisdom is found in this one act. Fullness of wisdom is found in this one act, that that is that justice and mercy are met in the cross. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Why would somebody powerful, the God of the universe, submit himself to the cross? Is the question that the world asks us. Seems foolish. But to those, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will throw. Referencing back to Proverbs chapter 3, our passage today. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. You see, wisdom can lead us to God. You can even take some of God's wisdom and apply it and probably succeed in parts of life. But but the, the wisdom of the world does not lead us to wisdom or to, to God. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews, they demanded signs. Greeks sought the wisdom. 
but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Greeks. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. But to the humble, verse 34 back in Proverbs 3, but to the humble, He gives grace. To the humble, He gives grace. But when we recognize that we have fallen short of the glory of God and confess our need for Him and see that Jesus has died in our place to assume the position of the one who received the justice, when we recognize that our wisdom is nothing compared to God's, and seek after his wisdom and to know him. And what results is a security and a peace and a pleasantness and even sometimes riches and honor and sometimes long life that can never be taken away. Even death itself so many Christian martyrs have testified to by their works, even death itself cannot rob us of the eternal life we have in Christ Jesus and the assurances that he's given us, that he loves us, that he cares for us by entering into that messy situation, into the world, and enduring the suffering for our sake so that we could be called the righteousness of God. That's the gospel in Proverbs and the challenge to us to pursue wisdom and live rightly. Let's, uh, let's pray. Our Father, we delight to call you that. That you know us and you love us. That you've provided salvation for us by your wisdom and not by the wisdom of the world that ostracizes the weak that uses the powerless. Help us to be humble, to exercise the power and authority you've given us with great care, compassion, and humility. And remind us daily of the security, protection, peace, and pleasantness that we have when we are united with Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen.